Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we look at how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Our guest today is Miles Taylor, who's the author of the recent book Blowback, which analyzes threats to American democracy posed by Trump and Trumpism. A national security expert, he worked in the George W. Bush and Trump administrations and was the author of the New York Times op-ed, I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration, which was uh, published anonymously at the time. And I actually wrote a blog post trying to figure out who it was, so I'm very excited to not only know that, but to have Miles here to chat with us. Welcome, Miles. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I've got a couple questions that are a little bit kind of backward looking and looking to kind of retrospectively analyze what happened um, when Bush was president from 2017 to 2021. The first one I want to ask is, how well do you feel like the resistance inside the Trump administration succeeded? What are, what are your reflections on that looking backward? <laughs> uh, it's a pretty damning assessment and it's a damning self-assessment. Um, I think we, uh, I think we did a pretty bad job. And let me tell you why. I think the first year of the Trump administration, the so-called axis of adults, which is the term I prefer over resistance. Uh, You know, the Times is the one that chooses the names of its editorials. You know, you don't get to choose your own name. So I took some issue with the heavy focus on the term resistance because, you know, we weren't people trying to thwart the lawful orders of a commander in chief. It was a group of people who were regularly trying to push back against ideas the president had that were immoral at best, but often illegal or unconstitutional at worst, which is kind of what, as an American, you would expect your public servants to be doing. But I say I'm self-critical about it because we went in, a number of us, with this delusion that we could really keep Donald Trump in check, that he would grow into the office, that he would listen to his cabinet secretaries, And that while it might be turbulent, that the man could ultimately, that his really bad ideas could be contained. And I think if you were alive during the Trump years, you could see that in the end, we had a really tough time doing that. Because what Trump ultimately did was he systematically identified the individuals who regularly told him no or spoke truth to power or said, you know, Mr. President, it would be illegal to shoot innocent mothers at the border to deter other arrivals. Mr. President, it would put the nation in danger to pull out of NATO. He identified those people. He basically had a list and he systematically fired them or pushed them out of the administration. And towards the end, you saw an administration that was largely stacked with loyalists. Now, could it have been worse? It could have been a lot worse. And I think that's one of Trump's biggest regrets is that his plans were slowed down for several years because there were so many people that were resisting them. A second time, they won't make that mistake. Interesting. I yeah, I, I have to say the I, and I've read you know much of the genre of the kind of Trump uh, Bob Woodward type books, and still the, the descriptions of the conversations 
uh, about immigration and the border were were chilling in your book. So I I kind of want to ask something about this kind of broad um, was your your phrase the sort of axis of of um, pushback or now I've forgotten the operative word there, but I like this axis As, axis of adults. I love this. Yeah, I've I've been there with the with headlines, and I agree that resistance is confusing. I think of resistance is referring to like a very specific type of Trump era liberal, and you know I think words have meanings. But I've been wanting to kind of ask someone close to the situation this for a long time, and this goes a little bit out of the the realm of just the White House and into the kind of Republican Party more generally. But I'm curious what you think explains why some people in that orbit, as sort of like acquiesced to Trump and kind of, you know, got on the Trump train and other people ended up either resisting or ultimately you have a lot of kind of prominent people, Paul Ryan, Ben Sass, who left politics. Do you think there's a a way we can explain the difference between those folks and say someone like like Lindsey Graham who ultimately have sort of joined the Trump project? Mitch McConnell maybe would be another example. I tell a story in the book about a conversation that I had with Adam Kinzinger, the former Republican congressman, to try to get to the heart of this question. Now, I will say probably a lot of us have had this conversation, I don't know, a couple hundred, if not a thousand times over the past few years where we sit down with friends and say, what is it? Why did some of these Republicans know better and tell many of us in private how horrified they were by Donald Trump and the populist MAGA movement? And yet acquiesce to him so publicly and to demonstrate such total fealty. How do you dis- how do you explain that? Now, you know, a lot of explanations out there. People want power. That's an easy one is, OK, if Donald Trump's in power, that's the way to ascend the political ladder in Washington is you've got to salute the chief arguments about, uh, you know, fame and money. And you, you could go on and on. I thought I had landed on the most compelling argument, which is I had grown closer and closer to believing that the reason why so many people held privately very negative opinions of the president and yet still praised him in public was that it was fear that they were most afraid of suffering the consequences that those of us who spoke out suffered. You know, Adam has published the voicemails that he's gotten threatening to kill his wife and children. I did the same after he did that. I published a string of voicemails just to give people a sample of the vitriol of turning against Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. And so I I went to Adam and I said, Adam, we had a conversation on a retreat in South Carolina. I said, I think most of your colleagues aren't speaking up because they're afraid of the safety of their families at this point. He said, you know, Miles, there's something they're more afraid of. And I said, what could they be more afraid of than their families being in danger? And he said, Miles, they are more afraid of getting kicked out of the tribe than they are of death. And that's how strong the tribalism in our politics is, is that everything they've built, their identities, their careers has been around this tribe. And they would rather be dead than ostracized from the tribe. And and I've been using this anecdote a lot because Jerry Seinfeld used to have this joke he would tell when he opened his sets 30 years ago, where he would say, you know, studies show Americans have some really serious fears and their number one fear is public speaking. But Americans' number two fear is death. So your average American would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. 
And there's something about that joke that I think rings true when it comes to today's Republican Party is a lot of GOP leaders would rather be caught dead than speaking out against this institution that they've built their lives around. That's interesting. And it certainly makes sense given some of the psychological perspectives out there about how important these kinds of identities are. I do remember that Seinfeld joke. Now that I've, I've sort of praised the axis of adults, I actually want to push back a little bit on the way that, um, I mean, this is really, I'm just like uh, cribbing off of one of the reviews of your book a little bit. Um, but I think it's a reasonable concern is the sort of set of criticisms about the idea that Trumpism is actually traceable to the conservative tradition instead of a hostile takeover of the party. And kind of related to that, this question about the kind of institutional and policy and personal aspects of the Trump threat. So in some parts of your work and other work in that genre, it's like Trump as an individual is what people are most concerned about. Other times, and I really like this about your book, you do spend a lot of time really engaging with the moral problem of his approach to immigration. Um, And then there's a sort of institution piece, like the lack of respect for institutions that is like pretty typical of global populism. So I wonder how, I realize I've now asked you like a 12 part question, Um, but I wonder how we should kind of think about this, about like how distinct is Trump versus Trumpism versus elements of the conservative tradition that may explain why Trump has had such success in the GOP. Well, I, th- I think he actually falls pretty far outside of the conservative tradition. And, and I would make him, he's got to be the most significant outlier ideologically. But let me be very specific. Let me try to grade his report card as a conservative. And, and, and I'm going to use bumper sticker talking points here to just simplify it. But you know, in my view, the conservative tradition, at least the modern iterations we've seen since Reagan, were really rooted in libertarianism with a small L and writers like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, but but stretching all the way back to, to John Stuart Mill and even much before that. But that tradition ha- was centered on a belief of maximal freedom and a a limited role for the state, essentially in protecting the country and enforcing contracts. And that's about it. And anything else, you know, beyond that should be the freedom of the individual to choose. The bumper sticker for those is what I would call free minds, free markets, free people. This idea of free and open debate and letting people, you know, believe what they want, worship, you know, who they want and how they want. Uh, That's free minds, free markets, a largely unfettered free market with limited regulation. And, uh, and and open trade uh, and and free people, political freedom, uh, human dignity, individual liberty, and everything uh, that that entails. Let's grade Donald Trump against that scorecard. In terms of free minds, Donald Trump was you know one of the progenitors of this popular talking point the past few years that the press is the enemy of the people, and it went from sort of a fringe Trump rant to something that's cheered at GOP rallies now. And there's a view now that the press is the enemy. And there's actually, if you look at the polls, sort of favorable GOP views towards regulating the media, which I find, again, very anti-conservative, certainly anti-libertarian. You go to free markets, 
Donald Trump was an incredibly protectionist president. He did not believe in free trade. He did not want to negotiate new free trade agreements. He actually wanted to reshore as much of U.S. industry as he possibly could. That protectionist attitude is something we haven't seen for a long time, at least in a Republican president. There's been waves of it in the Republican Party. And then that last metric, uh, free people and supporting human freedom. If you look at Donald Trump's foreign policy, the clearest theme is that he had deep and continuing disdain for our allies. I sat in those meetings. He really did not like our Democratic allies, either interpersonally uh, or engaging with their systems of government, democracies. Uh, but he had great affinity for autocrats. And whether it was Xi Jinping in China or Vladimir Putin in Russia or Kim Jong-un in North Korea, again, at least since Reagan, something that uh, really flies in the face of how conservatives tried to operate on the international stage, which was to embrace democracies and to resist autocracies. So across those three measures, I would give Donald Trump an F. Uh, and that's why I put him as an outlier in the conservative movement. All right. I'm going to hand it over to Lee now. Okay. Thank you. So you write, quote, if corrective action isn't taken, the MAGA movement will reclaim the American presidency in the coming years and do irreparable damage to our democracy. Now, I, I notice you refer to it as the MAGA movement. Sometimes you call it the next Trump as a way of saying that maybe somebody, it will be Trump or somebody like Trump. So I want to drill down here on your thinking, what is the irreparable damage that you see coming? And why why do you think it will happen, whether it's Trump or the MAGA movement or the next Trump? And how do you see those three as different or, or interchangeable? Well, I'll try to be at least somewhat structured in my definition of what I mean by MAGA and Trumpism, because those can just sound to the wrong ears like you know, broadsides or political talking points. I mean them in a very specific sense, which is I would characterize the MAGA movement and Trumpism, and I use those terms interchangeably, as having two core tenets. One is an acceptance in the use of official powers and government powers for political purposes and partisan purposes, which is one thing, again, that puts MAGA outside of the mainstream of the conservative movement. And a second tenet is viewing democracy's guardrails not as guardrails, but rather as impediments to policy implementation. So one example would be the justice system. Trump's personal animosity towards the justice system and judges, which many of us mistakenly thought was an aberration and an individual defect of Donald Trump, has now been imprinted onto the party. And you see largely favorable views, uh, or sorry, largely negative views now towards the justice system and favorable views towards things like judicial gerrymandering and getting rid of certain courts and, and circumventing the courts. So I do think that those tenants that uh, defined MAGA and Trumpism at the beginning have now largely been imprinted on the party, Lee. And I would say that my concern about whether it's Donald Trump himself or someone else returning to the White House and implementing that agenda holds when you look at what's happened to the base of the Republican Party, which is a lot of that base has been radicalized towards MAGA views. And I could get very specific on that and talk about why I think they have. But that means that whoever ends up being the GOP nominee, if they want to keep the base together, if they want to win the presidency, then there's an enormous electoral imperative for them to cater to that movement. 
And by catering to that movement, it means catering to those viewpoints that I just noted that people in that movement strongly hold, including a vast range of conspiracy theories. So you end up with a pretty uh, noxious cocktail of uh, political factors here that would encourage the next Republican president to govern as a MAGA president. So let's talk a little bit about how that would happen and what what are some of the things that you're most worried about. So you, you talk about in the book what's going on at the Heritage Foundation and the America First Policy Institute. Uh, you talk about the, this new crop of devout loyalists who would be there to staff the administration on day one, how they would use acting positions and and how they would get around the the sort of permanent civil service. So talk us through what you think they would be doing and why you think it will be different if this happens again than, than the first time in which there wasn't really this cadre of devout loyalists from the get go. I'll answer that question in two parts, and one is personnel and another is priorities. On the personnel side, you hit the nail on the head, Lee, which is that the institutions that normally staff up uh, a presidential administration have changed significantly in Washington. So when you know Donald Trump was elected, these think tanks in Washington, like the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, Normally, an incoming president relies on that network of like-minded groups to help them find their team, uh, to refer everyone from cabinet secretaries all the way down to staff assistants to literally perform a personnel function and say, we have helped you identify the people you want to work in there. Now, Donald Trump was deeply resentful a few years into the administration when he realized most of the people that staffed his administration had been referred by those think tanks. And they were former Bush officials. And he not only personally hated the former president, George W. Bush, but he he noticed in the course of his duties that Bush officials were the ones who most frequently told him no, because they'd had experience in government uh, and they knew what was lawful, what was not, what was what was ethical, what was unethical. And so he started to purge Bush people from the administration. Uh, Well, something very peculiar has happened since the end of the Donald Trump presidency, uh, and perhaps not too peculiar. I say that sort of tongue in cheek, which is that most of those D.C. based conservative institutions that used to be run by Bushies, as we call ourselves affectionately and as Donald Trump calls us ruefully, have been replaced by individuals who are hardcore MAGA supporters, people who were, uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation is now run by Donald Trump's former personnel chief at the White House. Uh, One of the biggest conservative think tanks in Washington, America First Policy Institute, is almost entirely staffed with loyalists who stayed with him till the very end. These are the institutions who, in a next Republican administration, even if it's not Donald Trump, will be the ones going to the transition team and saying, here's who you should hire. And the president has 4,000 jobs to fill. So it's not like they have a lot of time to sit there and cook up names themselves. So regardless of whether it's Trump, uh, on the people side, I fully expect MAGA loyalists and campaign aides and people who don't have terribly much experience in government going in to run the executive branch, people who are likely to say yes and support the president's aims uh, no matter what. On the policy side, I think what we have seen is that uh, a lot of Republican politicians have now taken Trumpism further than Donald Trump. And these things that we used to think were just Trump missives, the ranting of an angry man, have now become mainstream Republican talking points. Things like 
cleansing the FBI of the deep state, things like overhauling the intelligence community by installing political operatives, ideas about using migrants as pawns to bus and dump them into democratic cities. These were ideas that Trump was ultimately talked out of in a first term because they were illegal, that now his acolytes are taking a few steps further than he ever did, and again, have become mainstream talking points of the Republican Party. So so that is why I worry that there's a possibility the next Trump is even worse than the first. So this is like like the Stasi? Is that, is that what we're going <laughs> to see? Well, and, and you don't have to take my word for it, uh, you know, Lee, but, I, you know, of the people that I spoke to, there were some pretty damning quotes that folks gave me in their own names for this book. I mean, Trump's own counterterrorism chief at the Department of Homeland Security said to me he worries in a second term there would be a junior Gestapo that's created. And he didn't mean that hyperbolically. He meant quite literally because there were discussions in the first term about creating a private mercenary force that reported directly to the president that, you know, in a second go around, if they stood that up, it would be, uh, you know, in actuality, somewhat analogous to something like a junior Gestapo. Uh, Towards the end of the administration, we saw Donald Trump actually try to use DHS security forces in a way we had never imagined them being used at the Department of Homeland Security, such as when the the department's elite counterterrorism team was sent into Portland to put down protests. That was pretty jarring to folks. I think you'll see a lot more of that in a second term. And, you know, when I talked to intelligence officials who worked under Trump, like Fiona Hill, they warned that the intelligence community would be weaponized in a second term to spy on political rivals, to misconstrue intelligence. And her comment to me was, this will get the United States uh, into wars. And I had someone else that, again, was a top Trump official at the National Security Council say they will start pulling FISAs, which are basically eavesdropping warrants against their political opponents to gather dirt on them. I mean, this is this makes Nixon uh, look like a grade school teacher. Wow. Uh, yes, uh, th- that is terrifying, Miles. So I I want to end not on on the darkest of notes here. Uh, but give us a little hope. So I, I'm going to quote from you again. You write, uh, and I'll quote, a, a victim mentality has overcome voters since the Trump presidency, with Americans lamenting the brokenness of our politics as if the unwelcome situation were a faultless mishap. We must be candid with ourselves. This isn't happening to us. This is happening because of us. Can you tell us what you mean there and what potentially gives you hope. You call for a a great civic awakening. How are we going to get that great civic awakening? And why have we done this to ourselves? Well, I will confess uh, that that I think I'm answering this question to two people who could answer it even better than me and two people who I consider democracy doctors. Uh, So let me do my best to convey it the way that I think that, uh, that either of you might convey it. But I think the situation that we are in as a country, specifically where we've got pretty dangerous hyper populists like Donald Trump uh, as major figurehead and potential returnees to the White House is because of us, is because in recent decades, we have let our democracy atrophy. And to the point, we've let it become very uncompetitive. Um, My friend, Andrew Yang, often uses this example. He says, you know, he asks audiences, what do you think the approval rating is of Congress? 
And most people throw out a range of different numbers. And the answer is it's usually between somewhere 15 and 25%, but pretty low. I mean, I think we've seen the approval rating of Congress before drop down to 10%. So point being, the American people do not think that their members of Congress are doing a good job. They roundly uh, disapprove of them. Then Andrew asks another question. He says, well, what do you think the reelection rate is of your average member of Congress? And folks, you know, throw out answers. Maybe it's 30% or 40%. No, the answer is usually between 90 and 95% of incumbents win the re-elections. So in what other marketplace in the world do you have people say resoundingly that they hate the product and then they just keep on buying the product? That points to a deeper issue. And that deeper issue is that we have ignored the structural calcification, if you will, of our democracy, which is that the system itself is now more and more favorable to the extremes, to allowing extremes to get elected. And I'll pick on one element of our system, is the primary process used to just be a way many, many years ago to cull a wide field so that on a final general election ballot, we wouldn't have a thousand names and we would have you know, the final candidates to vote on. Well, the two parties have done a really darn good job in the past half century of making the primary process a process that heavily favors them. In other words, that their most ideological supporters will come out because in a lot of states that process is closed and you got to be a card carrying member of that party to vote in it, which ultimately means that roughly the 10% of us in this country that are the most ideological are making the decisions for the other 90% about who's going to be on that general election ballot. That's why if we talk about it like it's a grocery store or a marketplace, the massive consumers walk in and the reason they keep buying the crappy product is it's the only thing on the store shelf. So I really think that the way out of this mess, the avenue to get us past political extremists being elected to public office like Donald Trump is we've got to take some really long-term generational democracy reforms to open up the process introduce more choice and competition into it, which tends to have the effect of minimizing the extremes and giving voice again to that moderate majority in this country. And that means third parties and new reform factions within the existing parties and changing the way that we vote again to make it competitive. But that won't happen before Donald Trump uh, is potentially on the ballot again. This is going to be a multi-decade exercise, but I do have faith that we can make it happen. And there's been really exciting developments around the country uh, demonstrating that there's momentum behind those types of reforms. Well, uh, obviously you're singing for my hymnal. We need we need more choice. We need more parties. I, I, I would add a little bit of nuance to this, uh, to, to Andrew's point about the low approval rating of Congress in that one, Congress has always had a pretty low approval rating. And two, most members are approved of by their own constituencies. But it's true that 90% of them don't face any general election competition. And the primaries, and, and I will amend, whether open or closed, there's not, I mean, there are a lot of states that have open primaries and extremely low turnout as well. Uh, it does add an extremist inducing element to our politics. But but I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you at least feel a little hopeful that Maybe this will be a turning point in our democracy. Just as as a final question, what do you think the odds of Trump or a next Trump winning back the White House are at this point? Uh, well, we said we were going to end on an optimistic note, but I will say 
you know, if you if you asked me right now who the next president of the United States uh, would be, I, I would tell you I, if my best bet would be it's Donald Trump. And um, a lot's going to happen between now and then. There's going to be third party efforts uh, to field a unity ticket. We don't know what's going to happen with Joe Biden's candidacy and Trump's indictments. And so there's a lot of X factors. But, uh, you know, I'd been saying that for a while. And maybe a year ago, one of uh, President Biden's really close allies, a very close friend of him, had said that to me. He said, if I was in Las Vegas and I was down to my last thousand dollars and you asked me who the next president of the United States would be, I would say it was Donald Trump. And if Joe Biden's close friends are saying that, then I think that's a really alarming sign. Um, but, But again, a lot can happen between now and then. And my note of optimism would be that we are seeing a number of people in the Republican field smartly decide that if they want to try to win the primary, then they better go against the person uh, who's leading in the polls if they want to take him down. So you're seeing uh, folks start to attack Donald Trump, like Chris Christie and Will Hurd and Asa Hutchinson. Uh, But the jury's still out on whether they'll be able to break out of that field and become real contenders. All right. You heard it here first. Donald Trump may be our next president again. Uh, But hopefully not. And maybe we're on the verge of civic renewal after people read blowback and we get that great civic awakening that we need. So thank you, Miles. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Our pleasure. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.